Hello and welcome to episode 68 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray playing ringmaster for what's likely to turn into a circus today as we welcome one of our favourite pod guests back to the microphone, Mike Clayton joining us shortly to talk about who knows what. Always a series of rabbit holes to fall down when Clayton's is part of the panel and I'm sure that many of you, like me, are looking forward to the unknown journey ahead. Before we cross to the Melbourne studios, however, let me bring in my regular co-host and author of one of my favourite pieces of writing this past year, a breakdown of the player's logo, which he retweeted at the start of last week. I enjoyed it at least as much the second time around as the first. Adrian Logue, when will we see another Logue-O breakdown? Did you see what I did there? Logo. I did. Breakdown. Uh, yep. In all honesty, I miss them. I suspect others do too. What's the problem? Lack of time or lack of targets? Lack of time. There's plenty of targets. It's I, I like to target businesses and companies that have like take themselves too seriously mm-hmm. i think they're deserving of ridicule and the players is <laughs> it's the gold standard yeah, it's, it? it's, started at the top it's there. absolutely deserving of ridicule the way it just how seriously they they treat themselves so uh yeah i don't know there's plenty of plenty of ones out there did you get uh, did you get a good response again this year? A lot yeah. of people had missed yeah. it last year. A lot year. of people hadn't seen it. Yeah, so <laughs> I enjoyed it the second time. I like I've got to say. Tony Deere's response that he was he was never so thoroughly entertained and so thoroughly confused <laughs> by something. <laughs> or something time. like that. I don't know. Uh, it all worked though. Well done to you. Let's head south to the golf capital of Australia, where we find today's guest generously waiting for us, despite it being six thirty in the morning. I reckon I've written dozens of intros for Mike Clayton over the years, and I still never know quite how best to describe him. He's a player, he's a commentator, he's a columnist, he's an architect, and to many of us, he's a voice of reason in the game, but perhaps he's best known simply as Clates. Clates, how are you, mate? Thanks for taking some time. Thanks, Rod. Look forward to it, Yeah, as always. always. Yes, that's exactly right. We always seem to manage to fall down some interesting rabbit holes, don't we? I wanted to start today, firstly, Clates, uh, you've done some caddying for one of our brightest prospects. We've been talking about young Elvis Smiley for a while now. You sort of first alerted me to just how good he might be at the Australian Open back in the back end of 2019. Uh, you've caddied in a couple of events for him since where he was in contention. What is he, 18 years old, turned pro just a few weeks ago? Tell us a bit about Elvis Smiley. You wrote a terrific column about him for Golf Australia as well, which I'll put a link to in the show notes before you jump in well, he's 18. I've known his mum since way back when we used to go to Wimbledon in the 80s. Uh, I carried for him in the Australian Open where he played really well the first few days, shot 70, 67, and then uh, at a 75, 71 weekend. But two years, two and a half, well, a year and a half later, he wouldn't make those same mistakes again, I don't think. I uh, carried for him at Rosebud where he was six over after 14 and managed to finish second by a shot to Brad Kennedy, who stiffed an eight on at the last hole. Then he was third at Bonnie Doon. So pretty good all up for his first time as a pro. Indeed. Look, results don't always tell a story. I mean, we lots of players have had great amateur careers and good results. Ones. There's something different about this kid, though, isn't there, Clarence? You've seen loads of golfers in your time, but he's got something, hasn't he? What is it that he's got, do you reckon? Uh, well, he hits the ball better than most. I mean, I think, you know, was, we'll go down the rabbit hole of equipment, but, I mean, everyone's a great driver now. They all watch him hit off the first tee by and they all swing at 120 miles an hour, and they all bomb it and hit these really impressive tee shots. But my wife, who knows nothing about golf, was watching, and she said, well, you know, all those guys stood there and they smashed that thing straight up in the air, and Elvis hit it about 15 foot in the air, straight through the wind, hit this low-ripping bullet. So he hits different shots. He's a better iron player than most. In fact, almost all the ones I saw playing those two tournaments. And he's a great chipper. 
you know, and you can't get by with just a short game now, as you could in the past probably. But if you want to win tournaments and win big tournaments, you've got to be great around the greens. And he's an amazing chipper. And he's got a lot of faith in his own ability, which is never never a bad thing, really. He, he's got that everybody copies the best, but the best don't copy anybody. His mum told me, we had her on the thing about golf podcast uh, about a year and a half ago. She said the thing that stands out to her, and obviously Liz is a talented athlete herself and has performed at the very highest level, is that he, he, he marches to the beat of his own drum, not in an arrogant way, but he filters all the information that comes to him and decides what he wants to do as opposed to what you get with a lot of programs, I think, Clates, where kids are told this is what you've got to do and that's what you've got to do. He doesn't sort of follow blindly was the sense I got from her, that he's got his own personality and he brings that to it, which might be the most important ingredient. Yeah, and stubborn to a fault, really. I was talking to his dad last night about it. He didn't. He had a chance to have a great caddy last week and because he didn't know him, he passed up on that and caddy, well, he dragged his own bag through the pouring rain and missed a cut by a shot. Um you know, his dad was sort of saying, well, he was pretty stubborn on it and, you know, thought he knew the course well. And what's funny, I mean, it doesn't matter how well you know the golf course. It just helps if you've got a caddy to, just to do mm. the clerical stuff, even if he doesn't say anything. Yeah. Just to keep the clubs dry and do the yardages and all the stuff that you have to do if you don't have one. And, of course, you know, you watch it on TV and most guys didn't have caddies in fairness. But if you've got a chance to have a – it was um, Lawrence Herity who caddied for Bob Shearer when he won the Australian Open, caddied for Bob for a long time here. Anyway, that's, um, that's a good lesson for him. Yeah, indeed. I'm, I'm back on the bag uh, next week at Concord, which will be fun, New South Wales Open. Indeed, we'll get to catch up, which will be nice. Like, you got to follow Clates and Elvis for a, a bit out there. I think you went on the second day out to Bonnie Doon. As, <laughs> don't take this the wrong way. To the untrained eye. How did Elvis look to you? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's he's one of those golfers that looks like he's got a lot of time in his swing. Like he's he's got a noticeably slow swing for a professional golfer. Like they say, the Sachin Tendulkar thing. He just looks like he's got more time. He than looks others. like he's got a lot of time, and and he he's got that thing that ball flight that you can tell he's sort of got a lot of shaft lean, and he really compresses it, and he takes the divot in front of the ball, which is something I'm completely unfamiliar with. <laughs> but it just, yes. it, he hits that shot that, you know, comes out low. Mm. You know, what do they say? All good players hit their short irons low and their long irons high. And I, he seems to do that. Yeah, so. indeed. What about the players' series, Clates? It seems to tick a lot of boxes to me, potentially. It's, it's a concept that's got a lot of potential, it seems to me. You've carried in two of them now. What was your take? Well, they were great. Rosebud was terrific when they had Brad Candy, Elvis and Suo pretty much tied for the lead with four holes to go. So that an amateur woman and, and a veteran tied for the lead. Uh, the crowds were really good on the weekend when they were, in fact, limited because of COVID. And then Boeing doing the same. You know, not particularly difficult courses, but good courses, good fun to play. And uh, it's giving kids a chance to play, really. Mm. Uh, to me, as spectators, I think it's the course that they can take these events to courses, Rosebud and Bonnie Doon are mm. two prime examples, where you can't take, quote-unquote, big-time golf. You can't hold the Australian Open at Bonnie Doon or at Rosebud. But these events, and the other thing it does is it shows us club golfers just how good these players mm. are. Steph Kiriakou shot 63 the first round of Bonnie yeah. Doon. I think you played with the Clates. We did. We were out with her the first. Yeah, she. that was a good round, obviously. Oh, well, obviously it was a good round, but she um, – the next day was tough. It was really windy the next day, and she battled it in the wind. But, yeah, 63 was a hell of a score. In, in fairness, she made a couple of couple of bomb putts. From, she, had a couple of, she had a dodgy iron shot into 
on, into the second hole. We played the 11th and made a bomb from 50 feet and hit some great pitch shots and drove the ball well. Yeah, beautiful. So it, it wasn't a smoke and mirrors round, but it, you know it was. Um, could have easily been sixty-seven. <laughs> it could have easily been sixty-seven. Yeah, yep, indeed. Which is still. But it was. Um, but but she she had a great year in Europe last year, and she'll have another great year in Europe this year. She's really good. A bit like Elvis, I think her attitude. She's she, she something happened last year at Bonville when she won that tournament as an amateur. I was there for that whole week, followed her all of the last two rounds, when I think she also made a shot sixty-three on the Sunday. There it was just extraordinary. It was like a switch was flicked, and she just turned into a killer. Yeah, and, you know, she went from a delightful young bubbly woman to just a killer on the golf course. And I've heard her game that week. I haven't seen her play since. From 50, 60, 70 metres, those awkward distances, she just hit it inside six feet all day, all weekend up there at Bonvoy. I was extraordinarily impressed with just how good she was at that, those awkward sort of range of shots. So If she can get on the LPGA, I think she'll do I extremely do well. Yeah, I, and she's very composed. She yeah. She's like got that serene look about her when she's walking along. I, I reckon Hannah Green had that. Yep. She's doing what she's meant to be doing with her life, yeah. and it's quite clear. And she's only, what, 19? She might have turned 20 now, but she yeah. already knows this is what her life is supposed to be. She's absolutely 100% yeah. in the right place. And I followed her in that second round that Cleats is talking about where it all unraveled a little bit, and but she was extremely composed the whole way around. I thought, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's a, that said that said more to me than, than the, the 63, 63 the day before. This is the yeah. thing about professional golf, isn't it, Clates? They're all capable of shooting 63 on their day. It's the ones who can turn 76 into 72 and those sorts of things. Those testing days might be more telling about a player, ultimately, mightn't they? Yeah. yeah the real difference between where she's well, where she is now and where she wants to get to on the, on the the being one of the best players on the LPJs, they all drive the ball well. They all, they're all good pitchers. They're all good putters, but the best players on that LPJ Tour are great iron players, really good. Like, I mean, Sayong is a brilliant iron player. But, you know, they're strong and they hit the ball really well with their irons. Yeah. In Bay Park, we watched the clinic she put yeah. on here in South Australia yeah. a couple of years ago. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. So, good future ahead of both of those young players. They would have been a fantastic pairing, actually, to be a part of, Clay. She's looking at two of the potential future superstars of Australian golf for the next two decades right there. Yep. So. No, it was, it was fun to be out with them. And what about being back at Bonnie Doom, which you played a part in the redesign there? I've not seen the finished product. I didn't have a chance to get out there. What were your thoughts on how Bonnie Doon is looking now compared to what uh, it was when you found it? thought it was really good. I mean, apparently there were a few guys bitching about it, but, you know. Golf clates. <laughs> you know, that professional golf. Someone's going to bitch about it. Pros, pros bitching about golf courses. Yeah. There's nothing new. Um, yeah, I think it's a fan, really fun course to play. And, and, it's, and it's, it's an interesting course to caddy on because there are – Kind of four or five drivable par fours where you've really got to make a choice about what you do. Elvis played the 12th hole. He played it one over for the week, which was a disaster. He made double bogey the first day and only made one birdie on a hole that was drivable for him but got into his head. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting to try and pick the right club. The last day coming up the 17th hole, which is a dangerous hole to drive it on, into the wind, it's unplayable left and – smelly 50-yard bunker shot from short on the right, and he, the guys ahead took iron and laid it up sort of 120 yards away. And I said, well, you're not going to make a birdie from there. And he took a three-wood and ripped it up 30 yards off the green and made a three. So he had a great shot there. So so it was it was fun from that sense. Uh, the ninth hole, they've softened the bunker on the right, and if the hole was originally going to look as it does now, we'd have definitely made that a par four. So realistically, the par was 70 and... I guess 18 under one, so really that was 14 under because the ninth hole was a drive and a, mm-hmm. end of the wind, it was a driver 
four or five iron down when it was a driver wedge. So 14 under par is not a bad winning score on a course that's re- really that short because it's got some interesting defences. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Must have had mixed feelings, close as caddy and designer. Elvis played one over, a hole that he should have played in four under. That's a victory as a, a designer and a loss as a caddy, isn't it? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I guess. But, you know, it was, um, there were a few other holes he got his own back on. But uh, I mean, the interesting thing was the shot that cost him a chance of winning, he flat-hooked it out of bounds on the 14th hole, the worst drive I've seen him hit in two weeks. He just hit a low duck hook. And it was a foot short of getting across the boundary line at the far end of the practice fairway. But he made eight there and... That was really the end of any winning chance he had, but um, which was a hole that which I think it's a terrific par five. It's it's a completely new hole and a really smelly, difficult hole, especially under the wind. Well, everything about it, isn't it the the drive, the second shot, mm. the green, every step of the way. There's it's it, got it keeps you one of the few holes with a split fairway where it genuinely has a strategy to it, yeah. where you you got to think from you know where's the pin today, yeah. and then work yeah, back exactly from there. Right. Work back from there. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. indeed. Split fairway holes don't often work, but that one does work really well. You see, half the guys go on the right, and half of them go up the left, and it depends on the drive and the wind and. Where the pin is, you know, and I think it's a, I think it's a great par five. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Interesting stuff. Yeah, no, uh, Elvis doesn't need to panic about hitting a bad shot. We watched Warry dump two in the water at Bay Hill uh, on the Sunday there last week and gave it all up right there. And he talked. I was interested. Close. Did you read his comments about chasing speed after what? I did. I did. Yeah. Time? You know, which was prompted the the best part in the world never copies anyone, but everyone copies the best part in the world. I mean, why you be copying when you're Rory? Why would you copy anyone? Yeah, yeah, you know, I guess Bryson gets in the head with all the crap he talks, but you know, it's um, why, why is Rory McIlroy copying anyone? The guy's, I think, he's the best player in the world. I do certainly too. when he certainly when he's playing his yes. best. But wow, it's been how long? Seven years since he won a major. I mean, that's mm, beyond yeah. belief. Hard but, to believe, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. What do you think about that, Logue? You're you're a Rory. I've always liked your take on Rory that he doesn't know when he's going to play well either. It just sort of no, comes he, over him and. He doesn't know. No, he's got no clue. From day to day, he's got no clue. No. He can't. He just can't turn it on when he needs to. Um, and th- well, the other thing I think with Rory is that he's a very curious person. He's wired differently, isn't he? And yeah, and he would have seen something like Bryson and thought, "I want to, I want to give that a go." Like he just, he's competitive on everything, like the mm. peloton, and yeah. I, I think he'd be a competitive reader if he could. Yeah, you know, it's just. It's, and and he, he's curious. He goes down rabbit holes and he wants to be really good at a thing when he takes an interest in a thing. And I, I think golf is just the, the thing that captured him before anything else. And he it's became like of, course, attention the of course he became well. very good at it. Yeah. yeah. And I think at times he was extremely passionate about golf and he still is. I think he's, his passion for golf sort of surges and wanes. But that that isn't going to get you sustained number one in the world. Passion surging and, and waning isn't going to – what, like, truly objective-driven stuff, like what Bryson's doing. Like, I don't think Bryson's passionate about golf. No, God, no. He's, he's extremely objective-driven, though. Like, having having a goal and really going after it is what gets you to the top. Passion can – briefly spike uh, but Bryce, i don't, I don't the limelight. It, he loves it above all else yeah uh, and he can have the limelight in golf because he's different and you know so he's he's polarizing you either like him or you don't there's not a lot of people on the I fence don't. about Bryce. I, I don't <laughs> either but that's neither here nor there i mean he can certainly play i admire what he does yeah, yeah you, you can't help but stand back and say hats off to him but uh 
It's not a direction I'd like to see golf continue to go in, but that's a discussion that we've had plenty of times uh, before. Clates, what's your take on, speaking of players, we don't talk enough to you about about players and the game and analysing. What was your take on Lee Westwood these last couple of weeks? 47 years of age and uh, back-to-back runner-ups on the most competitive tour in the world with some two extremely strong fields. Well, his thing looks great, really mm-hmm. solid. Still got the length to it. I remember, was it one Ryder Cup ago or two where he missed some short parts and lost his match and everyone said, well, that's the end of Westwood. Mm-hmm. He's never going to come back and play the Ryder Cup again. Now he's their number one guy right now. Yeah. Well, he's not number one on the list, but you know he's clearly going to be an important player in the Ryder Cup at the end of the year. But he's always—he you know, just had a really kind of solid. He's always hit the ball well. He's always had a really solid technique. He went through a remember a dodgy patch in the early 2000, 2002 or three at the PGA at Oakley. Was we were watching him there, and it was battling. He had missed a bunch of cuts, but. I mean, his first year on tour was my last, I think, 1996. I remember him being a kid in Morocco early in the year. It's been, he's been out there a long time and played so well for so long and clearly played well enough at some point to have snagged a major somewhere. Yeah. But hasn't. Hasn't done it, that's And, right. yeah, you suspect it's too late. But Well, you did until uh, the last couple of weeks or this year. It, you've... It feels like there's something about this year for Westwood. He just he said last year that he's just playing now kind of for the enjoyment of it. And you hear golfers say that sort of thing and you wonder, but he might actually be, it looks like, and the results are coming. It's uh, He looks very good. I think there'll be a fair bit of sneaky money on him at the Masters in a couple of weeks' time, to be honest with you. And it's probably not a bad bet. He's been close there before, so... Uh, yeah, you could, yeah, you could... Yeah, the Masters, yeah. Well, you could put a bet on him finishing in the top four, probably, but... That would be a good bet. I mean, winning is always – and the players is always a distraction from the Masters because you always think the guy who wins the players is going to be the favourite. You know, you watch Justin Thomas play and you think, well, he's going to win the Masters the way he played the weekend, but who knows? I mean, Dustin Johnson's not far off a pretty dominant performance a couple of months ago there, so we'll see. He had a go – Westy had a go at me at, on Twitter – which, uh, he, that's right. He did yeah. talk oh, about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was that about? Remind us. I made a pithy comment about his putting, and yeah, he, it was a ninety-seven. He o- just reminded Open, me that he won the Australian Open, and so I think I fired him up in some to some extent. Oh, so you're now taking credit yeah, yeah. for the <laughs> for the Westwood surge. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. In fact, I might reply to that tweet now, saying you're putting much better now. Yeah. <laughs> Good, good to see you've sorted out that part of your game, Lee. Yeah. You might make something of yourself now. I forgot about that. He didn't smack you good. You mentioned DJ Clates. He announced that the world announced he was asked at the weekend about the Olympics. He's already ruled himself out. Uh, this is a an issue that's going to bubble away for golf until the Olympics either says golf is out in a few years' time, which is quite possible if this keeps happening, uh, or if it remains in it, it's obviously going to be, be uh, stay as a talking point. You went to Rio in 2016. You're the only Olympian sitting in this panel. That's true. true. You're the only one who's probably been to an Olympic event sitting here at the table. What was your take on the Olympics before you went? Oh, cards on the table. I'm still not. I'm ambivalent about the Olympics at best. I don't see that golf benefits from being in it necessarily. I don't think the Olympics benefits from having golf. Having said that, though, what was your take before you went, Clates? And what was your take by the time you came back? Did your opinion change? And what do you um, what do you think about? I remember writing a column a long time ago talking about you know why does. My take was the Olympics need golf more than golf needs the Olympics. And I still think that's probably true. Mm -hmm. I think that the Olympics probably ought to be the pinnacle of any sport 
and it's not in golf, clearly, and it's never going to be. Or tennis, in uh, fairness. Or tennis. Um, the event itself was great. Gil Hans did a great course. The crowds were fantastic. Uh, I love caddying in it. I kind of have a philosophical objection to the Olympics in that the athletes ought to have a trade union that when they turn up at the gate, they get handed a big envelope of cash for just being there because the IOC make billions out of that event and the athletes get paid nothing. And I don't think that's right. I think the athletes ought to get paid for turning up and 25,000 to Dustin Johnson or Usain Bolt is a, is they're not going to miss that. But I've been going to watch the hundred meters final in the bus I was talking to a Zimbabwean rower who was a school teacher who was training in his spare time. He was clearly making no money out of that sport. And he, here was someone contributing to the success of the Olympic Games and contributing the being a part contributor to the billions the IOC make out of it, but making no money himself out of it. I kind of have an objection to that. I don't think that's right. And you can talk about, you know, it's an amateur. I mean, you know, these guys who think, well, Olympic golf should be for amateurs. I mean, no. you know, there is no such thing as amateur sport anymore. And it should be for the best players in the world. And no one would care about an, an Olympic amateur golf event, no. apart, you know, apart from the Australian Olympic Committee who might think they might get a gold medal out of someone winning it. But, you know, it needs to be for the best players in the world. And if the best players in the world don't play in it, then that's a problem. Indeed. Well, but, you know... The women are great. Every single woman turned up, and the women's event was fantastic because the women understand that they need to support women's golf or, or it'll go away because it doesn't have that huge base of commercial support that the, that the men still have. So the men could kind of blow off events like the Olympics because they're not used to having to turn up to make sure that their sport survives. So the women were great. They all came and played, and it was a brilliant event. Would Jack have blown off the Olympics in his prime weights. Different time, obviously, and I wonder how much that commercial thing you talk about has to do with it. I wonder if Jack Nicholas would have gone to the Olympics and been a great supporter of the Olympics, truly. We know Palmer did it with the Open uh, in the 60s yeah, and sort of yeah, rebirthed the Open. I suspect Jack would have played. Because, mm. of course, the Olympics wasn't interested in golf until Tiger came along. And once you got Tiger Woods, who became the best-known athlete on the planet, suddenly the Olympics said, oh, we're missing out. The best-known athlete on the planet isn't playing a sport that we've got in the Olympics. And suddenly, golf was back in the Olympics. Well, there's no more Tiger. I think we can safely say that this time, he's Tiger surely can't come back from what he's done to himself this time. Uh, if players, the status of DJ, the world number one, continues to announce several months in advance that he won't be playing, what, a chance, what are the chances golf stays in the Olympics? Did you change your opinion to seeing a benefit for golf being in the Olympics, by the way, after being there? Uh, not really. No. I mean, what have, you know, have there been any, any noticeable benefits in golf post the Olympics? I mean, the biggest thing for golf participation has been the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all the, all the billions or millions I spend on growing the game initiative, nothing's been as close to being as successful as COVID-19 as bringing people out in the golf course. Yeah, indeed. Justin Rose enjoyed it. He got four yeah, years of values out of it. Didn't yeah, you? And, and good on him. He carried the Olympic medal around in his bag and used to take it out of the driving range and show it off. But the, it's, the tournament itself was a little bit like trying to strike a wet match. I thought it was, you know, the, this should be really important, but... It, it just didn't carry no, the right. same. And people say, oh, it was an amazing success. Look at the quality of the golf down the stretch. And as Adam Scott said, well, what did you expect? 
<laughs> take a yeah. bunch of the best players in the world and put them on a golf course, they're going to want to compete. I imagine practice matches on the PGA Tour are weekly are at least interesting in terms of the quality of the play and the intensity that the the players bring in that sense. So it's just it just still doesn't feel like the right fit for me. The tragedy, of course, is that that's true of men's golf, but I think completely different about women's golf, which is, I don't know, is that wrong, Clates? No, because their majors aren't as big as the men's majors. They're not, you know, I mean, they've, they've got a bought major in the, on the LPGA Tour, the heavy, and just put up the cast and, yeah, we'll call it a major. You know, if, if it was... A, as easy to buy a major on the men's tour, the players would have been designated one 20 years ago. So it, it, it is a big event for the women, I think. Mm. Much bigger than – probably bigger than it is for the men. Now, I haven't spoken to any of the youngsters of the same generation, but I remember Sue O told me, and you're a good friend of Sue, she told me she remembers where she was when she heard the announcement that golf had been reinstated to the Olympics. She was on the putting green at Metropolitan. She was 12 years old. And she, it, it was a moment in her life. She said, wow, this is amazing. I might be able to go to the Olympics one day. And, of course, she did uh, in 2016. And I wrote that column yesterday, which that's what that's about. That'll be a generational shift. It's never going to be that important to me or to you or I guess to you, Adrian, because we didn't grow up with that. You didn't put on the practice green as a youngster saying this is for the Olympics. Mm-hmm. This is for a gold medal. That might change over time. If, but it's going to rely on these current players supporting the Olympics so golf doesn't get booted back out. So that's an interesting one. We'll see what, what happens. I know Karin commented on that piece that I wrote yesterday too, and that was the point she made. If the top men don't support it, chances are golf will disappear from the Olympics, and that's a real shame, particularly for the women. Yeah, the odd thing about it is that it's going to be the ultimate experience. It, it's it's going to be something you could chalk up and say, this wow. is an amazing experience. And truly but, unique. But I was incredibly privileged to represent my country. And that, you know, that, that was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and I would have been crazy to knock that back. Yeah. It, I guarantee you that's the thinking of anybody who goes as a golfer, um, but they just don't need it. And, no, and, it, and the spots only get awarded to a few people, so it's not and, just the strength of field suffers. And You know, D- Dustin was saying, well, it's a long way to go. Well, it's not that far to go in a private jet. And, right. you know, well, it's really? a long way back to the WGC in Tennessee is what he actually said. Oh, I can't recall yeah, what he said well, last year when he also said he wasn't going to go. I can't remember what the excuse was then, but this year it was it's a long way back to Tennessee for the truckload of cash for the WGC event, which is fine. Well, he, managed, that, he managed to go to Saudi Arabia. And he back, did manage to fit that yeah. in, exactly. And, of course, the PGA Tour could do the Olympics a favour with some scheduling changes. It wouldn't take too much, and there's a prime example of it right there. They've given Johnson the out by having the WGC the following week in Tokyo. The crowded schedule doesn't help. Just on the experience thing, Clates, your Twitter photo is still you caddying at the Olympics for Sue. So I'm assuming it's been one of your highlights in golf in your career. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, you know, I guess not many people get a chance to stay in the Olympic Village and see what that's like. And um, you know, I'd caddied for Sue quite a bit, so it was it was kind of fun to be there when the first Australian woman to hit a shot in the Olympic Games, it was fun to give her the wrong club and put her in the bunker <laughs> on the right. right. You had one chance and one job. Yeah. Can I reach that bunker with a driver? No. no. Straight in. <laughs> ah, shit. Nice club. Bogey. Um, but, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And it was fun to catch up with different people I hadn't seen for a long time, you know, from around the golf world who were who I would never normally see. So it was um, yeah, fantastic. Have you, am I right in thinking you've still got an Australia tracksuit, an official Australian team tracksuit that you would have been given? I do, yeah. Wow. I, I wear it often just because it's a, it's 
That's a handy tracksuit to have. In fact, it's the only one I've got. So, <laughs> in, fact, in fact, it's probably the only one I've ever had. So, um, you're not really a track guy, are you? Clates? Uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah. Look, it's, yeah, it's been fun. But, uh, was it more of a highlight, Clates, than caddying for Robbie McNaughton, finishing second to David Graham in the Ooh. 1975 Wills Masters? Uh, now, I saw Robbie McNaughton <laughs> at I played the Rich River Pro Am on the way back from Bonnie Doon. I played a two-day Pro Am. I saw Robbie there. I hadn't seen him for years. So we um we talked about that. Okay. No, that was good stuff. No, that was great fun. I really enjoyed that. That was a big that was a big deal for me. I was like eighteen, and the Will's Masters was the it was the second biggest tournament in the country, really, behind the Open. It's kind of the Australian Masters of its time, wasn't it? Really? Yeah, it was. It was the Masters, yeah, obviously. <laughs> so, but twenty-three-year-old assistant pro finishing second in a big tournament that was, was lots of fun. Yeah. Let's talk about you, you carried Elvis's big bag around for four days and then you went and played a two-day tournament. You drove down, I suppose, and played a two-day yeah, tournament. Yeah, so Debbie and I drove to Sydney, um, stayed with friends in Albury on the way up, stayed with my sister in Madonga on the way back, drove across to Rich River, played 36 holes there and then came home. But what about Chuck Peter Fowler. So Chuck plays. He played three senior pro-ams. In Melbourne, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, flew up to Sydney on Wednesday afternoon and played the New South Wales Open. The flew bo- to the Melbourne, not the New South Wales Open, the Boyne Doon yeah. Flew to Melbourne on Sunday night, rented a car, drove up to Achuka, played the pro am in Achuka Tuesday, Wednesday, drove back to Melbourne, flew to Queensland and played the Queensland Open. He's an addict. Miss, missed the cut in Queensland. Yeah, he did. Well, he missed, so he should finally. Surprisingly, he missed the cut. Yeah. I mean, have you ever heard? He's an addict. What is he, 62? 61. 61 years old. They played three pro-ams, drove up, played four rounds, drove back, played two pro-ams in Mel- and then flew to Queensland and played again. That's amazing. One, one of my favourite interviews I've done with, on the thing about golf mm. was Peter Fowler. What an extraordinary example to any any young person considering a, prof, a career in professional golf should go and talk to Peter Fowler and he'll happily sit down and talk to you for hours about what's involved and what it takes. And just a terrific bloke, Clates, still yeah, to this day. A, just yeah, a good guy. Chuck was a, it's funny, I mean, obviously George is a pretty famous model and his daughter, and she was complaining a few years ago about having to fly to Paris for a couple of days to get a picture taken. And Chuck said, you've got to get on a plane, fly first class all the way over there, get your picture taken for two days, and you're going to make more in two days than I get for winning a tournament. So get off your ass, <laughs> get, on, get on the plane, and stop complaining. Right. And you can start paying rent. <laughs> <laughs> That's the- I don't think George is paying much rent. And she said, you're right, Dad. Yeah. Uh, I actually caught up with George. She, she was out watching Chuck play at Boeing Dunan. What a great kid she is. I've known her since she was, like, literally she, the day she was born. And it's amazing to see how successful she's been and, and how hard she works. I mean, she's an incredibly hard worker at what she does and has done incredibly well. It's like golf, isn't it, Clates? It, 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 the, really, the best make it look so easy that it doesn't look like work, and that's never, yeah. ever, ever the case. It, it sounds as simple, don't it? Stand around and get your photo taken. My goodness, that doesn't uh, doesn't scratch the surface. Or He's our Bernard you, you, you think I hardly work. I know you hardly work yeah. because you text me all day <laughs> and you're on Twitter all day, so you can't be working because that's not your job. 
Um, he's our Bernard Langer, isn't he, family? That's who he reminds me of. He's a he's a legitimate nine to five worker. He almost does office hours with his golf. I keep dropping that on the table. I better put that uh, down. Now you mentioned the players and majors. I've had a I've had an idea, Clates. You've been pushing this idea for ages, which I've been on board with. That the PGA should become a travelling major every four years when the Olympics yep. are on. The PGA should go somewhere overseas, and I think that's a good idea. It gets shot down all the time in the US. This whole player's fifth major and all that sort of stuff, even though I don't agree that it could or should be the fifth major, I think it's inevitable that one day it's going to happen. A bit like the Olympics, I think it's a generational thing. Kids growing up now are going to start seeing the players as you know, the fifth most important tournament, and eventually it'll just become known as a major. Even when that happens, can't we then have five majors but have one that travels every year being the PGA? Well, yeah, my objection is why should America have four of the five majors. If you were starting golf again, and it's the one thing that tennis does better than golf, the only thing probably, is that you have four majors all around the world, Paris, London, mm-hmm. New York, and, and Melbourne. And to have three majors in America is bad enough, but having four there is ridiculous. And sure, if the PGA, every Olympic year, if the PGA travelled, one, it would take the PGA from being long behind far behind the other three you know clearly the fourth major with really no love attached to it to generationally but arguably being the most significant major because people would come to love it if it traveled you know if, if it came to tokyo and melbourne and paris and you know argentina and wherever once every four years is that really too much to ask you know so, so it's it, it would be a great thing for golf. It would be a great thing for the PGA Championship. And it, and it would, um, you know, it, it would in, you know, 50 and 100 years from now make, make it a much more significant championship than it is now. Exactly. And, you know, you know, which is not to underplay its significance. It's the fourth most important <laughs> form in the world. So it's pretty important. Absolutely, mm. yeah. But it, but it's far behind the two Opens and the Masters. It's got an identity crisis, hasn't it? It's a it's a well, PGA well, Tour on, event on steroids or a US Open line. Mm-hmm. That's the yeah. sort of tense. Well, the Masters is a, is a triumph of hype and, and, and it's a great event, as, as is the Players' Championship. You know, watching it yesterday and commentator says, here we are, the, the greatest finish in golf. I mean, really, it's a greater finish than – the last three holes at Royal Melbourne or the last three holes at St Andrews or Pine Valley or come on, I mean, it's a contrived train wreck with water everywhere. Yeah. That's true. And I'll, I take your point if you were to start golf again, but we're not starting golf again. The reality is that in golf, America is the pinnacle. It has always been thus. That I, well, certainly in my lifetime, it's never been any different. Every player around the world wants to get to the US tour. It's the richest tour. It's where the best players play. You can argue about the courses and the nature of the game in America. If you want that to change, the PGA going international is the only thing that's going to actually achieve that because that can achieve that generational change as well. It's not going to happen in our lifetime, but kids in Spain and Argentina and here in Australia need to be inspired by the PGA coming here uh, and being played, you know, as you say, at Royal Melbourne or in Tokyo. If you could do that, the PGA, I think you could make the case, have a responsibility to do that, don't they, Logue? There's PGAs all over the world. Mm-hmm. It's one large brotherhood. If it's not the responsibility of the PGA to promote the professional game globally, then whose responsibility is it? Yeah, the well, I'd have thought the USGA and the RNA 
but obviously they don't influence the PGA event. But the PGA of America mm-hmm. is what they're called, and I, I think they're they're they've first and foremost got a commitment to their members, which are all American professional golfers. So uh, I, I think that's a tough one. I, I don't know that they get they collect any fees from professional golfers around the world to be a member of the PGA of America. Um, if you were making a 50-year it, plan, how would you make the case for it to the PGA of America? You'd, you'd perhaps have to... I mean, Europe has a body... The European PGA? ...that combines the PGAs of, of Europe. Um, uh, but, you know, you just, they just don't have the same mindset as that with the American PGA. So, I don't know, I think it's a tough call. And, and as soon as... It's a mute point. As soon as any of this conversation came up... A couple of years ago, they immediately pre-announced the next dozen years or something of, of mm. venues. So you're saying it can never be changed, therefore we should just stop talking about it? <laughs> yeah, I just give up. Yeah. <laughs> well done. I just lay you. down and that's it. I'm done. What do you reckon? So the, well, yes. Yeah, so, so the PGA just and, – and, and it's not a harsh sentence, certainly, but they sentenced themselves to being the fourth major forever. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And they must – When they've actually them. got a chance to well, drag it, themselves up level – with the other three, why wouldn't you do that? Um, the Australian Open tennis proved you can do it. I mean, the Australian Open tennis was a long way forth, far behind where the US PGA is. Thirty-five years ago, when they were playing at Kuyong, now it's the equal of the other four majors because it's such a great event. So, the, our, our tennis open proved it can be done if you make the right choices. Well, the, P- the PGA is risking being the fifth major now. If, uh, well, it absolutely is, and in yeah. the eyes of well, Chambly's already anointing the as he does is anointing the players as as the fifth major. He's been doing that for a while, but he's awful lot of people. Lot more people are coming on board. The players has a case to make, doesn't it? Even those of us who are anti the idea, you can't deny. Only blind obstinance would see you not admit that it is at least easily the fifth most important tournament. And for many, and probably the players, it might almost sneak into being the fourth. And the players would all come on board if it was a, anointed, however that happens, as a major. Uh, that's a There's something tricky about that. As you said, the Evian thing didn't really work. It didn't convince anybody it was a major when the LPGA said one day, it's a major, but here we are eight years later. It's accepted by everybody that the Evian's a major. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I certainly think it's doable. The the potential marketing opportunities and the, the opportunities to make money if they're a bit creative for the US PGA by taking their tournament global, I think are many. Huge potential upside in benefits. You imagine the marketing opportunities if the PGA was coming to Australia. We've got a PGA of our own here. Every country where you were going to take it to has a PGA of its own. You can establish the notion uh, you know, as a marketing tool. It's an international brotherhood. You can trust your PGA professional no matter where you go in the world. Put some creative minds in there and work things around that. You'd know years in advance that the PGA was coming to Australia. You could be marketing well in advance. Uh, it's absolutely it would be doable and it could be done really well and it would elevate the time. I can't see how there's any loss in it, but this short-sighted notion of it's the US PGA and must stay in America, bad for the game. Bad for the game, ultimately. Yeah, so and they, be- they, they would all say, grow the game. Or- yeah. Does that mean growing Grow the, the game. game in America? <laughs> or does that mean growing the game around the world? Well, clearly it should be growing the game around the world, shouldn't it? If it, wasn't, if, it, if it wasn't code for <laughs> grow my business, you'd take it seriously, Clates. Yeah. 
which is the truth of Grow the Game. That's what all those Grow the Game initiatives absolutely, absolutely. tend to be about. What about the players as a golf course, Clayton? Something really interesting. I was going to write my column about this week just gone. Matthew Wharton, friend of the pod, shout out to Matthew, sent mm-hmm. me a, a message after the Bay Hill tournament, all the hoopla about Bryson knocking it across the water there on the six trying to drive the green, and which I... Like you, I don't particularly like Bryson, so I actively try not to get sucked in. I enjoyed that, though. The vortex. Well, a lot of people did, obviously. I never saw it. But the point Matthew made, and I thought this was really interesting, Clay, so I'd like to get your thoughts on it, is that we know Brandle's banged on about that tee shot Dustin Johnson hit in Hawaii a couple of years ago, which finished a few inches from the hole, 412 yards or whatever it was on the hole. And he talks about it being the greatest shot ever hit, which is all clearly nonsense. We all know that. And I wrote a piece at that time saying that that shot of Johnson's only got interesting when it hit the ground. Once the ball was on the ground, now it was interesting. And as Matthew pointed out to me, there was a similar effect with Bryson's shot because, in fact, it was only interesting until it hit the ground. So it's the complete reverse of the area game. The water changes everything, the notion of the carry. Talk a bit about the ground game and the aerial game, Clates, and why one may or may not be more sustainably interesting than the other. And what was your take on Bryson, you know, supposedly trying to knock it on the sixth green, although he aimed 70 yards right of it, clearly never had any intention of hitting it at the green, which is neither here nor there in that instance. But I thought that was a really interesting notion, something for the game to consider, or for those of us interested in that side of the game, to consider aerial versus ground. Yeah, well, the ground game, what the ball does on the ground is way more interesting than what it's doing in the air, really, isn't it? I would have thought. I think so, but we need to make yeah. that case, don't we, if we're going to say that. Well, yeah, there are so many different variants of what the ball's doing in the air. If if the ball's carrying over something pretty fearsome like Bryson was doing, then, yeah, that's interesting to see if you can make it. What's kind of dull is watching someone hitting a 70-yard pitch into a par five. I'd much rather watch Greg Norman hit a – or Seve or Nicholas or Weisskopf or Rory or – Dustin Johnson hit a unbelievably great two-iron into a par five and watching someone chip the ball on the green because they can carry it 30 yards further than someone else. I mean, my problem with that hole is that if, if you're 30 yards longer than someone else, you can be 150 yards closer to the green. That, to me, is kind of a bad hole. And it's only a bad hole because of what technology's done to it. I mean, everyone used to play it. Around the, 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 the Around. Mm. But when it's only 350 or 60 yards to carry it, which was 70 yards more than anyone ever imagined when the hole was built, then, you know, it becomes a kind of weirdly distorted, pretty uninteresting bad hole. Two notable statements from Clades today when he... When it's only a 350-yard carry and my wife, Deb, who knows nothing about golf. <laughs> Both of those, <laughs> I didn't think I'd ever hear him say. To me, Adrian, the difference between the you know the Johnson shot when it hit the ground and Bryson shot where it's all in the air, the ground game requires an added element of skill, which is imagination. It doesn't take any imagination to do what Bryson did. It just takes a lot, a lot of hard work on a track man to know that that's your carry and then a bit of judgment maybe with the wind and is it on today. So to me, that... That's a less interesting um, game to watch because there's less things that the player's being asked to do. Yeah. You, what do you reckon about grand game versus? Yeah, well, I think it was illustrated pretty well at the players, actually, um, because the most interesting thing for the most part at the players wasn't taking on the hazards. I think you could make this case even for the Island Green 17. It, it's not, they all hit the green, it's, it's where the ball, where they hit the green. Are they, are they hitting it on a firm part where it's just going to bounce off or are they hitting it on the right 
side of a slope where it's going to feed down towards the hole. That That's the actual strategy of that hole is where they land it. And and that was some interesting stuff there. It's it's short enough that they, they don't usually rinse it on the full like um, Brendan Todd. Brendan Todd. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is still hilarious. Uh, and Justin Thomas hitting his drive on 18 as well, which was pretty fascinating, watching that um, sling around and then its journey on the ground was much more interesting than its journey on the in the air. Um, yeah. So, I don't know, that, I, I thought it was illustrated pre- reasonably well there. That it was... Uh, it, Lou Brown described those, that finishing sequence of holes... As like diffusing a series of bombs. Yes, that's right. He's right. Too, <laughs> I thought, thought it was thought it was true, but the challenge I think that for the most part those guys are dealing with is you know the hazard is in their head, of course, a little bit. But it's it's mostly about where they're landing it and what the ball's going to do on the ground. And thankfully, there was a little bit of firmness to TPC Sawgrass. Maybe website. a little too much on the seventeenth yep. green. Yep. <laughs> you watch some of those shots. What's well, the new green? Apparently, so yeah. yeah so it's 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 if the seventeenth was surrounded by sand clades, it would be nowhere near as intimidating, was it? I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that make that hole. The only reason I give it a pass is because of where it's built, what it was built for. It's a purpose-built. The, the problem with the seventeenth at Sawgrass is that people copy it, clades. I think it makes for that it's a great design, and that's a mistake. I think. Yeah, as Tom Doug said it was the German start of the plague yeah um you know i, I think that the seventh hole at bamboogle would be a much more interesting oh. hole as the 17th hole at sawgrass and more difficult I, let's I, be honest I mean, <laughs> so many more players would miss that green than than, mm. than mr green it but you don't make 10 i've got kind of some sort of objection to someone hitting a pretty decent shot that trickles off the back of the green into the lake and he makes 11 mm. which is what ben Arndt did you know i think the crazy scores there drive me insane because I know how I would feel if I hit what I thought was a pretty decent shot and walked off with a six or a seven or an eight, which has happened more than once on that hole. I don't think any par three should really be yielding numbers like that. But if a hole like 17 at Bamboogle was sitting there 120 yards to a brutal tabletop green, if you go in the left bunker, you really can't make a three, but you can bail it out in the right and probably make four. And But you've got to hit a really precise shot to get on the green. Is now, it, uh, it's a much more difficult green to hit than 17 at Sawgrass. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. Mm-hmm. The other thing about it, the 7th at Bambooga, which you'll discover when you finally get there, mm. Logue, you know, <laughs> this year, might be the only legitimate – it might be the only 120-yard hole where legitimately laying up is a sensible option. Do you reckon, Clates? Well, you don't lay it up, you bail it out. So laying up has got connotations of playing short. You don't play short, you play to the right. Pin high right is the bailout. Can you putt it up from oh, there? I would say short. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the yeah, front of the green, right. I think, is the play. Well, right of the green, maybe my memory's not correct, but my memory of right of that green is this extremely steep bank going up there, and you've now got a very narrow target between the edge and the bunker on the other side. So I would think short right to me is... Just the front of the green on the right there is the place to be. Anyway, that's uh, – but I agree. I think that would be a much more intriguing sort of golf hole. Back back to the notion of architecture, and I'm taking us down the rabbit holes here. What is your thoughts about sawgrass clades? It relies heavily on water, which seems a very modern sort of a construct. It's a, it's a very modern sort of championship, quote-unquote, golf course, is it not? That's the sort of test for the modern professional player where the penalty is severe. You can't recover from water, which is the difference to – the old course. Yeah, well, it was built in a swamp. So, 
I think I think it's a remarkably good course. I think it's interesting to watch. I think it's you know, you've you've got to shape the ball both ways. I think it's a pity it lost that kind of really rustic early look it had because the players complained so much about it. They softened it off, and you know, Pete Dye said I, I deliberately I deliberately did everything the opposite of Augusta, but we. You know, it's turned into a highly manicured, perfectly conditioned golf course. Uh, but it, it would be one amazing course to restore to its original look. But take away the severity of I, I mean, I never played it, obviously, the, the early course. But take away the severity of the early greens and some of it. But it was a better-looking course originally than it is now. Mm, I, I agree. What about the, uh, the amphitheater? Did you see that photo during the week of the – because the first year it was built, one of the ideas of it, and Dean Beeman talked about this on the Talk Golf History podcast with Connor, was that the, the land would form the grandstands. Mm-hmm. Did you see the yeah, photo yeah. early in the week showing I, all of that? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I did, yeah. Would you bring that back? Uh, prob- well, I, I don't know. I reckon it looked really interesting. I think the mm. ideas, maybe not every hole, but it's an interesting idea. I didn't think the look was awful either, to be honest. Mm. Now, I'm sure if it rained, it wasn't much fun to sit on those kind of well, those seats that kind of, you know, ledges that people sat on? Look, well, of- that's what they looked There were no people in the photos that we saw. We just sort of saw exactly. It just looked like a terrace ledge system where it sort of went from up the top like you'd have with a, a seated grandstand, which also aren't much fun to sit in in the rain, I've got to tell you. No, you probably no, haven't done much of it, but no. I've sat in the grandstand in the rain and that's not much fun either. So, I remember there was a golf – it might have been a Golf Digest article when that course first was built and they did a like a top-down – schematic of it and like over a big two-page spread and I, I remember being absolutely enthralled by it when i was a kid mm. it's like look it's dramatic it. isn't it yeah Incredibly just, dramatic which is and i was mostly impressed um, by the water i must say yeah. <laughs> it's like look at that where we've got bunkers at maitland they've got they've got, <laughs> they've got water, water. <laughs> right. growing up without water here yeah. kids right. cried when it rained the first time they've never seen something like that <laughs> oh, before well, maitland floods there's something to be said for the natural amphitheater and i always think about the 18th at the australian which is you know, maybe not the greatest golf hole in the world, but that amphitheatre around it, same with Riviera, where you get on that 18th hole there, you've got yeah. that natural sort of amphitheatre. They're always a fantastic place to watch golf, I think. There's a different vibe to that, to sitting in a grandstand. Uh, who knows? Maybe that idea will come back. I think I'm about done. Is there anything you want to talk about, Lloyd? Uh No, I think that's that's pretty good. Yeah. The Moore Park you, report is out. We'll yeah. talk about that next week. I've had a chance to read quickly through it. Scott Warren's certainly eviscerated it on Twitter in a five-post thread, which is worth reading, mm-hmm. so we'll have a listen to that. We have been officially rejected by Clover Moore as a guest, Clates. Yeah. That happened last week. Uh, she doesn't have time to participate, apparently, despite the invitation being open, so there was now, no time. Now, I, I don't know Centenary Park or Sydney that well, but driving from Bondi to Bonny Doon, I drove around it a couple of days. It's a massive park. Yeah, it's no, enormous. it's huge. It's enormous. What, what, yeah. and what, it, what, is she, what is she on about? I mean, she... Completely crazy. We'd love to ask her, Clates. Loved Clover. We would love to ask you. We really would. Just yeah. a massive, massive park, isn't it? Well, so here's the here's one of the problems. I mean, let's get going on this then. So one of the things that uh, that she says is, you know, that all those units they've built on the other side of the God. Always is it Cleveland? It's not Cleveland Street. What is, is that? South it? Dowling Street. South Dowling Street. Yeah. Announces that because of all of that, and those people look out over the golf course and they can't get access to it. Well, we've dealt with all of the untruths about that and the the misrepresentation of the reality of that. But then she's also saying that that population is expected to grow by a certain number in the next number of years. 
And it, are we expected to believe that then that will stop? So we just need to take nine holes of more park to cater for these 100,000 people we're going to move in here, and then that'll stop, and for the rest of time, everything will be just fine. Is that the suggestion? Because let's be completely honest, that's not going to stop, is it? You're giving up half the golf course now just means you're, giving a, you're going to give up the other half of the golf course at some point soon. And in the not-too-distant future, you're going to give up that green space for another development. That's the truth of it. Because the pressure for that to grow yeah. is never going to go away. So if you start uh, dividing the green spaces, all you're ultimately doing is setting up a, a situation where you're actually going to end up just giving the green spaces away completely. So the only solution there is to cater to those future residents by insisting that the, f- the future developments have the green space built in. Don't expect to be able to take it from elsewhere and that's going to solve a problem. That's kicking the can down the road for some future generation to deal with. And the argument in 60 years won't be, you know, should we keep the nine remaining holes of Moore Park? It'll be, should we build housing on the nine holes that are there, you know? And that's that's the problem with what she's proposing. And that's what everybody should, whether you're pro-golf, anti-golf, no matter what, that's the truth. If the, if the argument is we're just going to keep growing the population so we have to take back some of this green space, then that argument's not going to stop. And, and needs to be how long before those... 15,000 people they moved in to the left of the fifth hole at Bonnie Doon start looking at Bonnie Doon and say, we should have that land for parkland. Why are those golfers only exclusively playing on that? Yep, that's exactly right. It's exactly right. The other thing, of course, with Moore Park, what the council should be doing is encouraging the people who live in those units to go and try golf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go play golf. It's yeah. right there. You're mm-hmm. lucky enough to live next to a golf course. Go and have a go at the game. Yep. God forbid that, you know, it's a binary proposition. It's either walk around the park or nothing. I mean, Sandy Jamison's doing an amazing job with the stories that he's posting every day that he sees at Oakley Golf Club there. You know, there's that 90-year-old bloke who plays twice a week. You take that away from people, it's just wrong. It's completely wrong, and it's ignorant what they've done and what she's done and what her supporters have done in the presence. It's just ignorant. And not to mention the the environmental considerations, but golf doesn't have a fantastic environmental record generally, but... It, it is better than housing. Mm. <laughs> and it's improving. And golf does a very good job of repelling housing. It, it's the only, when you look at a, a map of Sydney, the only green bits mm. that stand out are golf courses. That's right. Um, and, uh, you know, if, they, if, it wasn't, if it wasn't golf, then they wouldn't be green anymore. They'd just be, it'd be one big heat sink. Yeah, in- what are you talking about? Golf doesn't have a great environmental record. I mean, in Melbourne, it's the last preserve. Mm-hmm. In the mm-hmm. southeastern suburbs of the of the indigenous vegetation and uh, of the indigenous vegetation and the heathland, I mean, you know, if there weren't any golf courses, it'd be it'd be Melbourne's. According to Tim Lowe, wrote a great book called Feral Future. We're talking about the environment and all all the horrendous things we've done to the Australian environment with introduced species, and he called Melbourne Australia's weediest city, and he described a weed as anything that doesn't belong, and. The golf courses are the sole preserves of things that belong in the city. And Royal Melbourne in particular. Yeah, well, all of them. Peninsula, Woodlands, Metro, Kingston Heath, they're incredibly important, both in terms of flora and fauna. I mean, you know, if it wasn't for golf, the place would be a complete disaster. Much better than parks, in fact, is what that that study For sure. Yeah, much better than parks. And Bonnie Doon's a good example, actually. Yeah, it's a great example. All of the, uh, the stuff that shouldn't be there got pushed back and it exposed some really great original scrub that uh, that has always been there so 
Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when it's I mean, done well, it's it is a yeah. absolutely. But that needs to happen at public golf courses. You can't just wander into Bonnie Doon and have a look at that. No, that needs to be the case at Moore Park, and it needs to be accessible to everybody to go and see those sorts of things. And they're the issues that you know. I mean, golf's not innocent in all of this. It's not like golf some That's right. paragon of virtue. We know we've made our mistakes, but this binary notion that you just get rid of golf and a whole bunch of problems are solved. It makes no sense, uh, it's, it, and it's an, it's an irresponsible line. It to doesn't pursue. make financial sense either. Oh, of course not. It's a double lose. It's a double lose. You lose staff from the golf course because it's half the size. You've now got to try and maintain it to the level that they were. Well, you can't do that because they're not just lawn mowers; they're professional course superintendents. You either got to pay or pay similar to have it maintained, or it's just going to look like the rest of Centennial Park. Yeah. So anyway. I think we made our point, our thoughts about that clear. So, uh, Clover, you are still welcome at any time to come on the show, and I think there's a robust and important discussion to be had, and we uh, we deserve to have a part of that discussion as well. Clayton, it's been great to catch up with you, mate. It always is. Uh, you back Thanks, here mate. for the New South Wales Open next week? Yeah, I'll, I'm looking forward looking forward to seeing Concord and seeing how Elvis is playing again, and seeing you guys and. Seeing Sydney, I mean, it's far. I've discovered driving to Sydney. It's not that bad. Oh, it's fantastic. Like I've been doing it for years. Yeah. It's yeah. much yeah. better than flying. It doesn't take that much longer, truth be told. No, it's a fantastic road. It's brilliant. So there you go. There you go. Good on you. Well, we'll look forward to seeing yeah. you next week. On the road, Sunday. Good stuff. Be there Monday. Any any meat pie stops on the on the way up? There is. The Long Track Cafe in um, Dugong. We stop there. Debbie buys relish there and good coffee and nice cakes. Yeah, there's no shortage of places to stop. I'm a, yeah. I'm a, I hate to admit it. I'm, I always stop at the KFC at the Dog on the Tucker. Oh, that's too, look at that! I've disappointed you now, haven't I? <laughs> oh, that's man, worse than I've disappointed him. You're disappointed. It's even worse than McDonald's, isn't it? Yeah, I remember. You know, Peter Knight used to be the New South Wales yeah, coach. Yeah, yeah. Peter, great bloke, fantastic golf coach too. Something we were doing a shoot with him somewhere one day. And we'd stop for McDonald's on the way there or something because it was early in the morning. I remember when we walked in and he sort of looked and he said, oh, Mac, he said, the only problem with McDonald's is they don't have any food. It's <laughs> <laughs> one of the all-time great lines. It's the only problem with McDonald's. They just don't have any food. It was wonderful. Lovely bike. Clates, we'll see you next week, mate. Thanks for the time. Enjoy it, right? Thank you. As always. Thank you. And thank you, Logue. Good to see you in and get cracking on some more. I'll, uh, I won't even bring up the book club, let alone the next logo take down. Yes, okay. Yeah, exactly. Well, may you furrow your brow. Br- I did write a piece on pimento cheese sandwiches in the latest Golf Australia magazine. Is that out yet? Yeah, it's out now. Oh, is it? Go, go get it. Oh, that's right. It was a you and you versus zone. Uh, oh, I better go and read it. All right. Uh, episode 68, done and dusted. Episode 69 next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.